This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with the likes of so many of my personal heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from witchcraft, paganism, mythology, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for ritual use. The lab has just released their annual Halloween perfume collection, which is a limited edition series that includes a line inspired by depictions of witches and sorcery in classical art Ooh, right up my alley. I've been a fan for years, and you will be too. So check them out at their official online shop at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Trude Apparel. Trude Apparel creates minimalist black clothing with an edge and often with pockets and thumb holes from soft, high-quality, eco-friendly materials like tensile and organic cotton. From dark florals to romantic sleeves to the futuristically sleek, their subtly unique clothing is naturally moisture-wicking, antimicrobial, and super comfy, and I can absolutely attest to this as a very happy owner of some Trude apparel garments myself. And they carry sizes XS through 3X, in many of their styles. It's also produced locally and shipped in biodegradable packaging, so you can shop responsibly this holiday season and look great doing it with Trude Apparel. And best of all, you can use the promo code WITCHWAVE to get 20% off your order at shoptrude.com. That's shop, T-R-U-E-D.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Snowy Owl Tea. And I am so lucky that it is because they spoil me with their scrumptious tea blends and always send me what's new. Snowy Owl Tea's latest concoctions include Midnight Moon, which is an Earl Grey tea blend with lavender and vanilla, and my new addiction called Ginger Snapped, which is a ginger tea with oats and vanilla, and it is just outrageously delicious. Snowy Owl Teas are unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. They are created with your health and comfort in mind using 100% biodegradable tea bags and some of the most beautiful packaging I've ever seen. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off orders using code WITCH. So go ahead and order some super delicious tea today from www.snowyowltea.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. 
I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to The Witch Wave. My lovely friends, this is a very special episode because it is the 100th episode of The Witch Wave. And as I was reflecting on this milestone, I've been sort of taking stock of my life and thinking about how when I started this show in 2017, I was on what I thought would be a six-month break from my corporate day job, and I was just starting to write Waking the Witch, and I was hoping upon hope to figure out a way of focusing on this magical calling in a full-time capacity. And, well, things have definitely taken flight since then, and here we are five years later, 100 episodes later, plus, of course, all of the bonus episodes that are out on Witchwave Plus. Shout out to the Witchwave Patreon coven. And it seems as though the interest in witchcraft of all stripes has only grown since then. And this past weekend was incredibly special because on Friday, I got to go to the New York Historical Society and take part in a conversation about the witch as a queer archetype alongside my friend and prior podcast guest, whose name I invoke all the time, Susan Aberth. And it was such a beautiful celebration of the full spectrum of identity that witches today embody. And on Saturday night, I got to attend the holiday show of two of my favorite drag queens, Benda La Creme and Jinx Monsoon, the latter of which who has become a cherished friend and who has also been on this very podcast twice. And when I tell you the amount of witchy pagan jokes that Jinx made throughout the performance, oh my gods, I was laughing so hard and swooning so hard in equal measure, and I can't recommend this show more highly. It's the Jinx and Dela holiday show, and it's touring now, so definitely go if you get the chance to. You will love it. And it was just this big spell of healing and silliness and reverent irreverence and absolute loving joy. What a pleasure. But the weekend kicked off, actually, when I first arrived to the New York Historical Society and was able to get a tour of their current exhibition called The Salem Witch Trials, Reckoning and Reclaiming. This exhibition was first up in Salem at the Peabody Essex Museum, and I'm so, so thrilled that it traveled here to New York City, because first of all, it's a beautifully and thoughtfully curated show, and includes everything from Salem artifacts, 
to an Alexander McQueen gown and celebration of his witchcraft-inspired fashion collection. And it also includes a series of portraits of contemporary witches taken by the marvelous photographer and I gotta say it, also my friend, and also prior Witch Wave guest, Francis F. Denny. And I'm beyond honored to have my portrait that she took of me be part of this show and displayed alongside so many witches I admire, several of which have also been guests on this very show, including Juliette Diaz, Karen Rose, Erica Feldman, and now today's ultra-special guest, Starhawk. So I just want to take this moment to pause and say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to each of you for listening to The Witch Wave. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors and Patreon backers who enable me to be able to make this show. Thank you to all of our guests over the years who have come on this show to share their magic and their stories, which is a true act of bravery and trust and revolution that I don't take lightly, because I know that today there are still so many parts of this country and parts of the world where being a witch or expressing any interest at all in this material is still deeply misunderstood or deemed threatening. And by finding each other, by learning from each other, by celebrating each other, we are strengthening this community of imaginative, hopeful, spiritual free thinkers who are using their gifts to help transform the world for the better. And on a personal note, I also want to thank the folks behind the scenes who help make this show happen, such as my Vanna Witch, Laura Antal, who is an assistant producer on this show. Of course, my dear husband, Matt, who supports all my magic. And also a special shout out to Cece Pascal, who is a wonderful friend and who really helped me kick off the Witch Wave in the very beginning days by teaching me some basics of podcasting and just generally being such an encouraging friend. And she also did some early editing as well. And there are also several other editors who have helped out over the years, the most recent one being Josh Wilcox, who is just an absolute doll. Go check him out at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. But as we are celebrating the 100th episode, I also want to emphasize once again that this current witch wave that we're in, this seeming explosion of hashtag witches of Instagram and witch talk and witch books and what have you, is actually not new. And whether people realize it or not, all of us, me, you, the witchy accounts that we follow, or the latest witch authors whose writings have helped ignite those sparks of magic inside us, none of us would be here without the foremothers, forefathers, foreparents of the modern witchcraft movement that kicked off generations before. 
and it's become a real mission of mine to make sure that people know more about this history and to give flowers to the elders and thinkers and spiritual ancestors who came before us to help make our paths more possible. And one of the most important and incandescent foremothers for me and millions of other pagans and witches around the world is Starhawk, author of The Spiral Dance, which came out in 1979, but is still one of the books I recommend most often to baby witches just starting out or to anyone really who hasn't read it yet. Starhawk helped kick off the goddess movement here in America and eventually throughout the world, and she has since gone on to write many more books about magic and activism and do many, many, many more amazing things, as you will hear. I would not be here doing what I get to do as a public witch if it wasn't for Starhawk blazing the trail before me. And so it was a deeply humbling and glorious honor to get to speak with her for this special 100th Witch Wave episode. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Ashton writes, Hi, Pam. I'm new to the witchy scene and fairly new to manhood. I've been transitioning about four years, and I'm trying to find ways of connecting to the divine masculine. So many gods treated women horribly and then were praised anyhow. I want to find folks to connect with that don't make me feel gross about being a man, but empowered. I love women and have so much respect for the divine feminine. I'm just ready to connect with the better aspects of my masculinity. Hi, Ashton. Thank you so much for writing. I wanted to answer your note today on this episode where we're going to be talking a lot about the divine feminine because I wanted to remind you but mostly our listeners, that the modern witchcraft movement has always emphasized not only the goddess, but also the gods, particularly a deity or being sometimes called the horned god. Now, this is a very Wiccan idea, the horned god, but I think it's a useful jumping off point for us to discuss these other aspects of the divine. Now, the horned god has been interpreted in many ways and given many different names, but for our purposes, I think the best way to think about him is that he is essentially non-toxic masculinity. He represents nature, sexuality, wildness, the cycles of life, also being a caretaker and a protector. Hmm, sounds a bit like a lot of the goddesses, doesn't it? But he has many aspects and takes on many forms. I think of the green man as a version of the horned god. I think of the Greek god Pan as a version of the horned god. I think of Osiris and solar gods like Apollo and Ra as being versions of the horned god. 
And at the risk of being considered blasphemous, though, what else is new? I think of Jesus and the Buddha and all other figures of the loving divine masculine as being versions of this deity. Or him being versions of them. I know it's trippy, trippy stuff. And as someone who has transitioned, you may also be interested in a god like Mercury, also known as Hermes, who is a boundary crosser, a messenger, a magic maker. Because trans folks, as I'm sure you know, are considered sacred in so many cultures, from the hijras of Hinduism to two spirits of some indigenous American tribes. And so deities like Mercury, who are boundary crossers or who make magic in liminal spaces and in acts of transformation, might also have resonance for you, in addition to the more quote-unquote masculine gods. But I also want to mention, again, mainly for our listeners, but perhaps as a reminder for you too, that of course a lot of the conversations around gender essentialism that are evolving in society overall right now are also happening in the witchcraft community. In other words, the notion that feminine always means nurturing or intuitive or receptive, let's say, and that masculine always means strong or protective or virile, these notions are becoming more fluid because, of course, we can say the same thing about all the genders depending on the context, right? I've known some incredibly sensitive and intuitive men and some ferocious, fiery women, and the same can be said about various gods and goddesses. Even today's guest, Starhawk, who, remember, made her name in the 70s talking about and writing about the goddess, has since evolved her thinking and her languaging to more fully embrace the notion that there is a full spectrum of expression of gender, sexuality, energy, and spirit. And she's written about this in some of the new forewords to different releases of the spiral dance and I highly recommend you track down her different introductions or forwards that she's written over the years where she addresses this very thing. All of that said though, I absolutely understand the value and the empowerment that can come in working with deities who seem to mirror or model the divinity that we as individuals aspire to embody with our own identities. And so I just want to end by saying that I am certain that you'll be able to make connection with the horned god or any other versions of this god or any other versions of the gods in general who reflect the magical man that you are. Best of luck and keep in touch. Now, on to my guest. Starhawk is an author, activist, permaculture designer, and teacher, and a prominent voice in modern Earth-based spirituality and eco-feminism. She is the author or co-author of 13 books, including The Spiral Dance, A Rebirth of the Ancient Religion of the Great Goddess, and the ecotopian novel, The Fifth Sacred Thing, 
and its sequel, City of Refuge. Her most recent nonfiction book is The Empowerment Manual, A Guide for Collaborative Groups on Group Dynamics, Power, Conflict, and Communications. She is a co-founder of Reclaiming, an activist branch of modern pagan religion, and continues to work closely with the Reclaiming community. Starhawk also founded Earth Activist Training, teaching permaculture design grounded in spirituality and with a focus on activism. She travels internationally, lecturing and teaching on Earth-based spirituality, the tools of ritual, and the skills of activism. All of that is just the tip of the iceberg, or broomstick as the case may be, and I encourage you all to check out her full bio over at starhawk.org to get a sense of the impact and inspiration that Starhawk has brought forth into the world in her 70-plus years on this earth. What a gift she is, and what a gift this conversation was, certainly for me, and hopefully for you as well. Starhawk joined me from her home in Sonoma County, California, via Zoom. Starhawk, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. I am so deeply honored and thrilled that you're here. And one of my biggest tasks for myself is not to fangirl too, too much, because you absolutely mean, as I said to you earlier, the world to me, the moon to me, the stars to me. So this is just the deepest, most delicious honor. I want to set the stage for people because you are such a pioneer of so many movements, but I'll broadly call it the modern witchcraft movement. And I want to make sure that my listeners, who are of many generations and ages, really understand how trailblazing, in fact, you have been for really your entire life. So I know that you're asked very often about your book, The Spiral Dance, from 1979. But I'd love for people to understand why you wrote that book and what was happening in the world and in America, which caused you to want to write it. Well, I began writing it in the mid-70s, kind of because I had been on somewhat of a spiritual quest, you could say. And it began for me when I was in college, even before that. But in college, a friend of mine and I did a project for our anthropology class on witches. <laughs> My first year in college, I was 17, and we found that there was this whole theory about witches being the old pre-Christian pagan religions of Europe. Mm -hmm. And now that seems pretty obvious, but at the time that was a radical idea that there even were pre-Christian religions. <laughs> Sure. And I just thought that was so exciting. And we just got totally into it. We formed a coven, although we had no idea really what a coven was. Then <laughs> the experimental college, you know, it was the 60s. So this was like the radical thing people set up that anyone could teach a class and anyone could take a class and there were no grades 
no credits and fees or no restrictions. And mm. we didn't know anything about witchcraft, but we just said, okay, well, people get together and we'll all research and find out. And we did all kinds of things and eventually met some actual witches who started training us. But I was 17. And after a few months or so, we all kind of drifted away and did other things. Sure. I got involved in the feminist movement, which was having its resurgence at the time. And it seemed to me there should be some connection between feminism and a religion of the goddess, which was the completely radical idea that the witches had taught us. I had never thought about a goddess or about seeing God in anything but male form because I was raised Jewish. And even though God was supposed to have no gender and no sex and no form, somehow he was always referred to as he. Yep. And in Hebrew, the language is very, very gendered. In a way, English is not, where every verb changes according to whether you're female or male. Mm -hmm. So it was always in the male form for God. And the idea that you could see God in female form, to me, was just a radical and very empowering idea, a very affirming idea. Yes. Women could actually take leadership because there weren't a lot of leadership roles in Judaism at that time. You know, it was a few years before the feminist movement started inspiring women to say, hey, why shouldn't we be rabbis? Why shouldn't we be cantors? Mm -hmm. This is now the early 70s. I was living in Venice, California, which is kind of a suburb of LA right on the ocean. And it was a great place at that time. It was full of artists and poets and writers and very bohemian. And they had a women's center that opened up. And I went to the Women's Center, and the feminism at that time was extremely anti-authoritarian. Everyone should be a leader. Yes. They were choosing the new directors by having everyone throw their name in a hat. I went to my very first ever feminist meeting and came out as one of the directors of the Women's Center. <laughs> there you go, meant to be. And I started helping people form consciousness raising groups, which was how we organized at the time. And it was a really wonderful way of organizing. It was forming a small group and you'd meet every week and each week you'd have a topic and you'd each have a protected time to speak because the idea was that women were always getting interrupted and you'd go around the circle and you'd each speak about your own experience. And out of those consciousness-raising groups came the whole political agenda of the mm -hmm. second-wave feminist movement, things that had never been seen as political, like rape or abuse, incest, child sexual abuse, all of those things that had always been seen as personal problems, but no real social context. When you sat in a circle and there were eight of you in the room and six of you had experienced a sexual assault, you started to say, hey, something's going on here. Yeah, clearly it's systemic or cultural or some combination. And that was where the slogan, the personal is the political, came from. Mm. So I always thought there should be some connection between feminism and a religion of the goddess. But nobody else seemed to think that. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead of your time. But then one day when I was driving down Lincoln Boulevard, I looked and I saw the shop and it said the feminist Wicca. 
and I nearly crashed the car. It's like, okay. <laughs> there's a whole shop. And I went in and met Z Budapest. And she was doing a whole coven of a hundred women or so and doing rituals and things and really trying to bring together her brand of Wicca, which came from her Hungarian traditions with her take on feminism. And Starhawk, this was um, her Susan B. Anthony coven number one. Is that the name of it? Mm -hmm. And I just have to say this for listeners to understand that even though today we have a more nuanced understanding of the complications of someone like Susan B. Anthony, at the time, she was considered quite inspiring and feminist. And so to pair together her name alongside witchcraft is really radical. Yeah, it was a very radical move at the time. So essentially, Starhawk, I was wondering, and you're already pointing to it, but how did this all then crystallize and become your iconic book, The Spiral Dance. What made you decide that you wanted to put all of these ideas of feminism, of the goddess, of the witch together in a book? Well, after another few months in Venice, when my consciousness raising group, we did rituals and things together. I attended a couple of Z's rituals. And then my life sort of fell apart. I broke up with the guy I'd been with for the past five years. My job came to an end. I was in graduate school at UCLA in film, and I won a writing award, and it gave me a chunk of money. And I decided that I was going to just take off and travel Mm. and drop out of school for a while. And I did. And I bicycled down the Oregon coast. And then I went on a canoe trip in British Columbia. And then I went to New York because I had decided I wanted to be a writer. And it seemed like you had to go to New York. (laughs) And I spent the winter in New York. And I was writing novels at the time. And then after that, I realized I was very much a West Coast person and I wanted to go back to the West Coast, even if that wasn't the best for a writing career. And Starhawk, while you were traveling and while you were living in New York, were you also part of a coven or practicing any kind of witchcraft? Not in New York, not while I was traveling, but when I was in New York, I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Yes, relatable content. I was cleaning houses for a woman in the mornings, and I gave me a little bit of money. I was staying somewhere, house-sitting for somebody. In California at the time, people would meet you, and they might go like, oh, cool, wow, what's your sign? In New York, they meet you and go, hello, I'm so-and-so. I do this and that. What do you do? What do you do for a living? How do you make money? Mm-hmm. And if I said I was a writer, they'd say, oh, what do you have published? And I'd have to say nothing. And then they'd walk <laughs> away. Instead of saying I was a writer, I started saying I was a fortune teller. And then they'd say, oh, can you read my poem? Or can you read tarot cards? So I started making a little money reading tarot cards. Nice. And my plan was to go back to the West Coast, find a little seaside town, rent 
a little cottage somewhere and set up a little sign that said advice and just read cards for people. (laughs) I love it. I love it. But what I ended up doing was moving to San Francisco and reading at psychic fairs. And at that time, it was really cheap to live in San Francisco. Mm. We were renting a place, beautiful flat for like $300 a month. Ah, it's too much. It's too much for my little New Yorker heart to take. So when you were back at the West Coast, And here's where I'm trying to get the chronology of your own development as a witch. I know that you were eventually initiated into the fairy tradition. And I'm not sure, did that happen at this point in your life? And was that also a catalyst for you writing the spiral dance? Well, I moved back there in 1975. And I was already starting to write because I wasn't having any luck with fiction. I thought I'd try nonfiction, and I thought it might be interesting to write about spirituality and the goddess and my journey around it. And the beginning, it wasn't all that clear. And I also started teaching a few little classes, kind of like the experimental college. Anyone could offer a class and people would come and take them before the internet. So it was just a little newspaper they'd advertise it in. And I was teaching this class on Wicca or the goddess. Hmm. Someone came in and she said, I'm Chandria. I'm from the new reformed order of the Orthodox Golden Dawn. And we saw you were teaching this and I came to check you out. I've been busted. The real witches have found me. (laughs) How little I actually know about this. (laughs) And Nerud, the new reformed order of the Orthodox Golden Dawn, was very active at that time and doing big public rituals. And it was really amazing to me. Like their first ritual was in a big public park and it was just so beautiful with music that they had written, a huge altar that was gorgeous, lots of beautiful images and giant baskets of moon cookies and Mm. beautiful costumes. And I felt like after it, I was just floating. I was on a high for days. The thing I had always wanted and longed for, there it was, like an actual big community of people that were interested in doing this. Yes. And they were forming the Covenant of the Goddess at the time, which was one of the first attempts to legally recognize church. So I got involved with that and eventually became the first officer. Through that, I met Victor. Mm -hmm, That's Victor Anderson. Yeah, Victor and Cora Anderson and began training with them in the fairy tradition. Ah, gorgeous. Eventually, if I'm tracking your story correctly, you start your own coven called the Compost Coven. Is that what comes next? (laughs) Yeah, so we started the Compost Coven kind of out of those first classes. And then a couple of years later, I started a women's coven and we called Raving. Ah, the Raving Coven. That's incredible. So I want to just help our listeners understand. Eventually, you write The Spiral Dance, which, I mean, I would sum up as a book that really connects the dots between the divine feminine, the earth, magic, mm-hmm. politics really kind of holistically braids together all of these different strands. And 
celebrate the goddess. We use that word very broadly, you know, the divine feminine, and also gives exercises and shares rituals and spells. I mean, it really is like a wonderful primer for anybody who wants to start practicing a feminist version of witchcraft. And, you know, it comes out in 1979, and it's such an incredible time period. I was just reviewing some of the other books that came out then. One of my other favorites, Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler, which is the first book to really, like, anthropologically study and celebrate all of these different pagan groups that are starting to emerge in America. In one of the introductions to The Spiral Dance to a later edition, you also talk about the book Woman Spirit Rising by Carol Christ and Judith Plasco. And so can you talk a little bit about this spirit in which the spiral dance emerges? You know, what else is happening in 1979? Well, it was a really interesting period, sort of the late 70s in the Bay Area. You know, there was all that activism people think of as being in the 60s. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it was also the early 70s around the Vietnam War. That was the period where civil rights was shifting, sort of civil rights to black power. Mm -hmm. The frustration with the Vietnam War was driving people sort of out of activism and into more things like spirituality or psychedelic drugs or other ways of trying to make change. Sure. It was also a time when the whole, what we call the New Age movement, the whole human potential movement was really revving up, and there was just a lot of exploration going on of different ideas and philosophies and ways of living and a lot of interest in learning from other cultures, whether that was Eastern spirituality or indigenous spirituality. Mm -hmm. The interest in the goddess and in feminist spirituality was happening at the same time, and some women were sort of staying within the established church or within Judaism and the synagogue and trying to open that up and make it more feminist. I strongly considered at the time that maybe I should go become a rabbi. Mm. But when I really thought about it, I thought if I was a rabbi, I'd have to spend a lot of time in services. Sure. And as a witch, I'd have to spend a lot of time dancing naked around the bonfire in the moonlight. <laughs> Not a difficult choice to make. <laughs> Starhawk, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Wiser Books has recently released a beautiful book called Lessons from the Empress, a tarot workbook for self-care and creative growth by Cassandra Snow and Siri Vincent Pluff. This is a hands-on workbook for using tarot to discover and express your creative self, the foundation of true self-care. Lessons from the Empress focuses on what the tarot can teach us about ourselves, and it provides exercises to strengthen our confidence in our own creative expression. This journey through the tarot will take the reader through phases of self-care, which the authors categorize as the major arcana of spiritual self-care, the wands of self-awareness, the swords of self-expression, the cups of self-love, and the pentacles of self-confidence. 
I also love that this book is extremely inclusive. Cassandra Snow is the author of Queering the Tarot and Queering Your Craft, and Siri Vincent Plouffe brings a focus through the unique lens of gender identity, and they see witchcraft as a way to break out of expectations and live outside of society, which is something that many readers crave. And some of you might remember that Siri was also on an episode of Witchwave Plus, and I've long admired their approach to divination and magic making. So do grab a copy or several of Lessons from the Empress out now from Wiser Books. This episode of The Witchwave is sponsored by the Many Moons Lunar Planner. Every witch's favorite spiritual guide and the original Lunar Planner is now available to pre-order. Infuse your everyday life with ritual, intention, creative coaching, and magic alongside practical ideas and encouragements to live your most authentic life. Many Moons has every single astrological transit alongside every single moon phase and moon sign for 2023. There are monthly forecasts and overviews, as well as dozens of tarot spreads, and every new and full moon comes with a thorough, exciting, inspirational piece to help you collaborate with the lunation written by astrologers, herbalists, witches, healers, mystics, and artists such as yours truly, and other witchwave luminaries like Juliet Diaz, Rachel True, Gabby Herstick, and Robin Rose Bennett. Get supported, grounded, and resourced for our 2023 chariot year. The Many Moons 2023 guide keeps the mundane magical so you can live your most magical life. Order yours now at moon-studio.co. That's moon-studio.co or by clicking the link in the show notes. And now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now look, I'm an air sign with anxiety, so I confess I'm sometimes stuck in my head and focused on stress and problems more than I'd like. But in addition to witchcraft, I have found therapy to be incredibly supportive because it helps me focus on solutions when I'm faced with a problem rather than just staying stuck in this feedback loop of focusing on what's hard. I've been in therapy myself for years, and talking to a therapist really helps me shift from a mindset of resisting what is into a mode of acceptance and problem solving, which has been such a relief. And that's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp exists. BetterHelp is an online platform for therapy, which means that it's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And that also means that more people can benefit from talking to a therapist. Being in therapy myself over the years has helped me manage my anxiety and PTSD because it provides me with an impartial, caring person whose sole job is to offer support with emotional challenges. Therapy has also helped me accomplish my goals, whether big or small. 
Quitting my corporate day job a few years back and writing my book, Waking the Witch, and starting this very podcast were all really exciting and also extremely nerve-wracking, and I truly don't think that I would be as fully actualized as a person doing what I love now without having had that help. And I want that for everyone. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because you can do it virtually. To get started and matched with a therapist who you click with, you just need to fill out a brief survey and remember that you can switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. Be well with BetterHelp. Welcome back to the WitchWave. Today I'm speaking with Starhawk. So Starhawk, you were talking about the ways in which the feminist movement and the witchcraft movement were emerging in the 1970s, or perhaps a better way of putting it is spiraling together. And in your book, The Spiral Dance, you write, The feminist movement is a magico-spiritual movement as well as a political movement. And in your book, Dreaming the Dark, you write, Feminist consciousness raising is a process based on sound, magical principles. So I would love for you to expand on this idea of how magic and politics are interrelated. I've always liked the definition for magic that I got from Dion Fortune. Yes. That magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. And if you think about magic that way, then you think about it kind of as psychology that seeks to understand both the different types of consciousness humans have available and how we can learn to move between them. And in doing so, how consciousness also affects the material world around us. Yes. So consciousness raising groups in feminism are an important tool for changing consciousness by sharing our personal experiences and listening deeply to others. It actually shifts the way you think about your experience. It puts it into a whole other context. And in doing that, it leads to actions in the physical world that actually changed reality. Mm, yes. If you realize that rape or sexual assault is not just your personal failing for wearing that short dress that day, but it's a larger societal construct, first of all, it relieves you of the guilt and the shame around it. And then it can lead you to connect with others and start a rape crisis center. Mm -hmm. Advocate for changes in the way that police deal with rape victims. All of the political work that's happened around rape in the last 50 years or so. Absolutely. And something that honestly frustrates me a little bit, Starhawk, is I've sometimes encountered people who are such fans of yours and who are such fans of the spiral dance, and they talk about you in the context of witchcraft and spells and the goddess, which is incredible and groundbreaking. But they don't necessarily 
contextualize your work as political or as activism as often as I think that it is. I mean, you are such an activist. You've been part of so many different protests. You've been arrested multiple times. After the spiral dance, several of your books are focused specifically on these notions of politics and power and magic and how they're all interrelated. So I'd love to hear you expand a little bit more on how you started weaving together your identity as a witch and your identity as an act. Well, I had always been an activist, even before I got involved as a witch. When I was in high school, we were protesting the Vietnam War and we were organizing protests around student rights. The first time I got arrested, actually, I was 15. Hmm. My friend Chrissy Hoff and I got arrested with a bunch of Vietnam veterans against the war including Santa Claus uh, <laughs> in Beverly Hills, handing out balloons that said, peace on earth, stop the war in Vietnam. Mm. And to me, it always seemed that, again, if you had a religion that said nature is sacred and that women are sacred and human beings are sacred and equal, then you couldn't just sit back and let idiots destroy the world. <laughs> You had to do something about it. Yes. And witchcraft doesn't have, we don't have a concept of heaven where it doesn't matter what happens in this world, it'll all be sorted out, made right in the next world. For us, this world is where it's at. Yeah. We do have a concept of the soul returning for many lives, that this life isn't the only one, that there's something about us that doesn't die when the body dies and returns in another form. But we don't have the kind of Hindu concept of getting off the wheel of birth and death. For us, the wheel of birth and death is it. Yeah. And that the reward for a good life is to be born again and experience life again and reconnect with those you have loved in this life. So to me, that leads to activism to make this world a better place to be, because it is the living embodiment of the goddess. And that is our job as human beings is, I believe, to be her admiring eyes and healing hands and loving heart. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. And there's a lineage of spiritual activists. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. was a faith-based activist, and I'm sure you can list dozens, if not hundreds, more. Well, here in the United States, so many of our most progressive movements have been spearheaded by Quakers and by Unitarian Universalists. Certainly many of the early feminists were, and the abolitionists. The Black Church has been such a powerful force. Indigenous folks have really been powerful example of spirituality just integrated into everything that you do, and especially into your activism and your politics. In Europe, there's often a lot of suspicion, partly again because of this whole Marxist construct that religion is the opiate of the people, and certainly it functioned that way a lot in Europe. And also because the Nazis had their own weird sort of warped brand, their own take on a form of, I'm not even going to call it paganism, but it was a... 
a racist fantasy. <laughs> yeah. And people are very wary about anything like that. But here in the U.S., I think it's really vital because certainly religion and spirituality have activated the right. Right now, the extreme right wing in this revival of anti-Semitism and overt racism and misogyny and this attempt to make this a Christian nationalist country we can't counter that just by rationality. We have to counter that by some kind of deeper system of values. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean like everyone should be waving wands and saying, I worship the goddess. But I think being very clear about what we see as sacred, and not in the sense of something outside you bow down to, but in the sense of what you most deeply care about what determines all the rest of your values, what sets your ethical standards, what is more important to you than your own personal comfort, convenience, or profit. When we say nature is sacred, when we say human equality is sacred, that we have to speak from that deep place of value. Mm -hmm. And we have to do it in a way that offers people some of what people look for in religion or spirituality. It's the meeting of some very, very basic human needs. We have a very powerful need to belong to something bigger than ourselves and be part of something. We have a very powerful need to make sense of the world, to have some sort of meaning and purpose. And I think when spirituality functions in a healthy way, it meets those needs in a healthy way. But those needs can also be met in very damaging ways, saying we belong because those people don't belong. Absolutely. This is reminding me of, again, something you wrote. I believe this was in The Spiral Dance. The three core principles of goddess religion are imminence, interconnection, and community. Mm -hmm. And to me, imminence is this idea that spirit is in everything and everyone. And then, of course, that leads to Therefore, we are all connected, and therefore, we should want to take care of each other, both, yes, for generosity, but it makes sense because we're taking care of ourselves, too, if we're all connected and we're taking care of the whole web of life, right? Yeah, the idea that, again, there's no heaven out there, that this world itself is the expression of the divine, and that's true in all of us, even in those people we don't like so much. Yes. <laughs> Some core in there somewhere, right? Yes, indeed. That's always a hard lesson for me to remember, though. <laughs> that everything is interconnected. Witchcraft is a personal religion, and there's a lot of personal work and meditation and things that you do, but it's also very much a community expression. And that community is a very important part. We're social animals. We're not meant to live all alone. We're meant to interact with other human beings. And we're mutually responsible for each other. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take another quick break. And we'll be right back. Blessed Bee Jewelry believes that being a witch is all about working with your personal power. Have you ever wanted to celebrate who you are with stunningly beautiful yet minimalist witchy jewelry? Then you've got to check out Blessed Be Magic. 
They create modern and minimalist jewelry for witches to remind you of your power. And what I love about them is that they are elegant and subtle, so you can bring your magic with you everywhere. Take their tiny pentacle necklace, for example, which is one of their most beloved pieces. Its minimalist yet elegant design makes this the perfect everyday talisman for today's witch. And it's really not hard to understand why Blessed Be Magic has over 900 five-star reviews from witches all over the world. Check them out at blessedbemagic.com, that's magic spelt M-A-G-I-C-K, and use the code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order with them. Shipping is free within the USA, and they also ship worldwide. So check them out. Their jewelry is just so, so lovely and so understated, yet full of power. That's Blessed Be Magic, and magic is spelled with a K at the end, dot com. I can't wait to see which pieces you choose. I want to tell you about a new witchy, queer-led podcast called Psyche Magic, where psychotherapist Jordan Hale interviews artists of all stripes about working with the subconscious via dreams, tarot, and the spirit realm. These freeform, playful conversations are about integrating the magic of symbol into both waking and dreaming life, deepening a sense of interconnection, creativity, and self-knowledge. Jordan's velvety voice and nurturing energy are perfect for relaxing and sending you off for a restful and sometimes eventful night's sleep. If you're like me, you're a practical witch who wants to put those seven or eight, or dare I say nine, hours of sleep to good use, and the Psyche Magic podcast will help you learn to work mindfully with your dream material and cultivate sustainable practices around reveling in your inner world. So grab your nearest dream journal and check out this dreamy podcast. You can visit their website at PsycheMagicPodcast.com. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E MagicPodcast.com. Or by searching Psyche Magic wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through Public. We decided to go with TeePublic for our new Witchwave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witchwave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks, oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL, so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. It is the perfect time to stock up on Witchwave merch for yourself or for holiday gifts. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Starhawk. So Starhawk, I want to ask you what your relationship to the word witch is today. In 1982, your book Dreaming the Dark, you wrote, 
I prefer the word witch to prettier words because the concept of a witch goes against the grain of the culture of estrangement. Such a great quote. How do you feel about the word witch today? Is that still a word that you would use to describe yourself? It's still a word I use, but I don't use it in every single context. Partly after like 40 more years of explaining it to people. (laughs) It's exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. But also because I work in many different cultures, you know, I also teach permaculture design as well as just magic and spirituality, because to me, that's the practical part of believing the earth is sacred. So I've taught that in many different countries. I've taught it in the occupied territories in Palestine with very religious Muslims. So sometimes you have to choose your words according to your audience as well. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll use earth-based spirituality or goddess religion. And sometimes I use witch. And I think there's still power in the word. You know, I think now it's become very popularized. Like people keep telling me, well, witches, they're really popular on Netflix. But you look at what they're doing and it's pretty awful. Mm. Some of it's fun, but. It's playing into the stereotype, you think? Yeah, it's not really about real witches or real witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So today, what do you think real witchcraft is? Well, I think it is a growing spiritual movement of people who are looking for a way to honor and celebrate the idea that the earth is sacred. And I think it's a very important movement at a time when so many of the life support systems of the planet are under threat. And it can be a great way for people to connect around that, to support each other around that. It also has become a home, at least in our tradition, reclaiming, which is what we call our own sort of brand, (laughs) a home for a lot of people who are gender diverse, who are gay or lesbian or trans or queer or something that doesn't fit any of the definitions. And we've done a lot of work in our tradition to make it more open and friendly to that whole spectrum of diversity. And I admire you so much for that, Starhawk, because as I'm sure you are aware, some of your contemporaries have not evolved the way you have. And so I am so grateful that you have It was really interesting for me reading The Spiral Dance again in preparation for our conversation. And I happened to have the 10th anniversary edition where you went back and added some notes. And I understand you did the same for the 20th anniversary edition. And I was delighted to see the ways in which even your thinking has evolved around gender essentialism and how you say in your notes. And I think you might have even said in the intro That as you've gotten older, your notion of what masculine and feminine are, what's male and female, all of these things has really become much more expansive and more of a spectrum. Yeah, I often find myself in sort of a difficult position because there are so many of women in my generation. I would say it's not so much that they haven't evolved. Some of them were always far more separatist than I ever was. 
Mm-hmm. But also, it's really hard for young feminists to understand what a radical idea it was in the 70s to actually identify as a woman. I'll get back to that in a minute, but the tea kettle is boiling now. Sure, sure. Yeah, one of the core realizations, I think, of that second wave of feminism was that we were all raised to unconsciously identify with men and with maleness. Humanness was maleness. Man was used as the generic. The standard. Yeah, the study of man, mankind. And that's maybe just a thing of language, but what it represents is that's how you felt internally. To be human was really to be male, and to be female was kind of the exception. Mm-hmm. So to actually turn around and say, well, no, I am a woman. I consciously identify as a woman. I embrace that. It's kind of like the Black Power Movement was doing at the time to say, okay, Blackness is not some aberration. It's not some subcategory of humanness, which is defined by whiteness. We embrace that quality. Black is beautiful. Black power. And it was a tremendous emotional work to do that. Mm -hmm. Small example, I was an art student. I remember once overhearing my favorite photography teacher saying, oh, I hate teaching women because they're just going to graduate and go off and paint in their garage. And my internal response to that was like, yeah, those stupid women. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think feminists now look back and can be extremely critical of the second wave, but they don't understand the emotional work that it took to actually get there. Yeah. A lot of the women who were much stronger separatists and much stronger essentialists, it also came out of a background of their personal trauma. I think one of the responses to trauma is to try to make the world really safe and to control it. And to control it, you need really clear categories. It's hard to accept any ambivalence or any nuance. Mm -hmm. Well, it's coming from a place of fear and fear keeps us separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important contextual point. But I appreciate about you that you haven't let some of those issues calcify you, that you have become more expansive, and that reclaiming movement is a movement of inclusivity of people across the gender spectrum. And I just think it's really magnificent and inspiring. So I really want to make sure that people know that about you. Yeah, we went through a whole long process looking at our principles of unity and realizing some of them were framed in a way that came out as very binary. I think we had a line that said something like, we worship both goddess and God. And it was really there just to distinguish us from the Dianics. Right, the Dianic witches who only worshipped the goddess. Yeah. Or worship the goddess. But the unintentional aspect of it was to create this very binary 
And plus some of the German witches who are, take things very literally, right, say, well, we don't worship the god. We never invoke the god. We only invoke the goddess. Are we not reclaiming? And say, well, it's not meant to say you have to invoke both goddess and god every time you do something. It's really meant that among our community, we include those who both worship goddess and god, right? We went through a long process of reviving and changing that over a period of several years, actually, so that we could truly involve our far-flung community, which doesn't have a central decision-making body to make it not less binary and include what we call the mysterious ones. Yeah, non-binary categories. This gets me thinking about spiraling back, if you will, to your vocation as a writer, and I know that language is very central to how you think about magic. You write about witchcraft as a work of poetic theology, T-H-E-A-ology, which I think is such a beautiful twist on theology, the feminized version of it. And you talk a lot about how witchcraft is, you call it a religion of poetry. You quote a writer named Anton Ehrenzweig, who wrote that the symbol of the goddess is pomagogic. And so I'd love for you to elaborate on the goddess, the witch, as this poetic figure or witchcraft as a poetic act, an act of language and mythos. I think of it like language that's distilled, like I distill some of my herbs into hydrosols and essential oils. And it's like you're taking it and you're bringing out the essence of something. And that's what a powerful poem does. It affects you emotionally in a deeper level than just regular talking. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see the mythology and the images that it's not a religion of a dogma, You don't have to believe in the great God as the big lady in the sky. You can understand that those images that we use are meant to evoke certain emotions, certain energies within ourselves and within the world, and that they're approximations that the human mind can understand of something that goes beyond what we can actually ever articulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you write so beautifully about this concept of starlight vision or starlight awareness, this other kind of consciousness, whether it's intuition or more creative mythopoetic thinking, which is engaged when we're practicing witchcraft or perhaps any kind of spiritual practice. Yeah, it's the difference between like that laser-focused vision when you're concentrating on something, when you're looking closely at one thing and seeing it in isolation from other things, to that broader vision that sort of takes in the whole and looks at the patterns. And I compared it to going out in the woods at night with a flashlight, lights up one little bit of ground and you can see what's there, as opposed to kind of letting the stars guide you where you're walking on the path and you're not so much looking at the ground, but you're feeling where that path is and seeing just the subtle differences and the patterns of things around. Yes, yes, yes. 
At the same time, though, Starhawk, you also write, I would like to see the goddess religion of the future be firmly grounded in science, in what we can observe in the physical world. And then you go on to say, witchcraft has always been an empirical religion. Herbs, spells, and practices were constantly tested and results compared at gatherings of the covens. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of science and empiricism versus the pomagogic starlit vision of witchcraft? Well, I think the reason we have an issue with science in that way is because we come out of a background of Christian dogma where you have to believe, you know, that God created the world in seven actual days and a virgin gave birth and Red Sea literally parted. Coming from a Jewish background, Judaism never really stressed belief in the same kind of way. There are sects within it now that are much more literalist, but in the more conventional conservative and reform movements that I was raised in, the Bible was understood as stories. You didn't have to take them as literally true. There's a tradition in Judaism of arguing with God, Mm -hmm. that God gave us reason to interpret the law, and we're supposed to do that. There's a wonderful story in the Talmud about a bunch of rabbis arguing about a passage, and one of them says, if I'm right, may the walls of the synagogue crumble, and the walls start to crumble, and then the rabbi kind of says, stop it, God, you know, butt out. (laughs) You gave us reason to interpret this, and now that's our job, not yours. And the walls stop crumbling. (laughs) Amazing. I love it. I love it. I think, again, if you believe that nature is sacred, then the process of learning more about it is a sacred activity. Again, if you understand that humans have a spectrum of different types of consciousness available to us, that focused flashlight vision is very useful and important for some time. Sometimes out in the woods, you really need a flashlight to avoid tripping and falling. And the older I get, the more I do, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I think especially now, like we've seen around the anti-vax stuff and things, I think when I posted a picture of getting my vaccination, I got more vitriol than anything else I've ever written except possibly support for Hillary Clinton as president. Starhawk, I'm so glad you brought that up because I had this down as something to maybe bring up depending on how the conversation went. And I was so grateful to you for posting your photos of yourself getting vaccinated. I also have been vaccinated and boosted and I've talked a lot about it on the show. But I also deeply appreciate a ritual that you wrote for people. This is your purification ritual for vaccine wellness, because to me, I saw you saying, "Okay, I'm not just going to dismiss you or try to convince you to get vaxxed. I mean, I'm sure you would have liked to for some instances, but I felt like it was a really compassionate way of meeting people and their fear and their understandable anxiety where they were at. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think as a witch, you know, we have really 
supported the revival of herbalism and the respect for traditional kinds of knowledge around healing and around earth healing and everything else. And we've been big voices to say, hey, there's a mind-body connection that goes beyond simple germ theory. And there are intuitive ways of knowing and emotional components to healing that we need to take into account. And all of that is really important. But it's not the same as saying traditional science is wrong. Mm -hmm. I use herbs a lot, and I'm really grateful for them. Most of the time, for almost everything, they take care of my health needs. If I have a cold or start to feel a little sore throat or something, an herb will do well. I had a little infected finger and soaking it in mahonium cleared it right up. Didn't have to take antibiotics. There's also many times in life where I probably would be dead if I hadn't had antibiotics. Yes, yes. When my husband had a heart attack, Western medicine was there to put a stent in. Mm -hmm. And when I broke my ankle, I had access to a surgeon to put it back together again. Yes. This is one of the great gifts of being alive in this time. It's not either or. You know, we have access to lots and lots of traditional knowledge and to Western medicine. I have many, many friends who very much wanted to do natural childbirth, prepared for it, and in the end had to do a C-section or had to have some sort of medical intervention. And I'm grateful that they're alive, their kids are alive. Yeah, absolutely. And 100 years ago or 200 years ago, they wouldn't have had that. So it's important for people who are herbalists, who are healers, who are in that world. Again, you can criticize Western medicine a lot and certainly criticize it politically. And you can certainly criticize the profit-making motive without going down the rabbit hole of huge conspiracy theories. Yeah. I wish the vaccine makers were not making a profit at all, and that medicine was not a profit-making arena. That's one of the things I've been working for my entire life. But the fact that they're making a profit doesn't mean that their stuff doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to have been able to be vaccinated and knock on wood. I have not gotten the virus. Yep. I'm knocking too for you. I haven't gotten it yet either, so... Yeah, they, it seems to be working. It's not 100%, but it certainly ups your chances. Absolutely. Starhawk, in our final few moments together, I want to just remind people that you came up with this notion yourself of different constructs of power that has been really influential on my thinking. And this was early on in your writing, but you write about the difference between power over versus power from within. And so much of what I would love to leave people with is your vision for the present and also for the future. And it seems to me like that vision is tied to this notion of power over versus power from within. So I just wanted to invite you to speak on that, whatever comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, we're all familiar with power over, with 
systems where someone has the authority to control others. And hopefully we're all familiar with power from within, that inner power that is our creativity, our personal integrity, our courage, our ability to draw or paint or create or write or to stand up and say a difficult thing, work on a relationship or take action and speak truth to power. I think a lot of what we try to do with Wicca and with spirituality is to strengthen people's power from within. Mm. and try to avoid or try to challenge unfair systems of power over. Power over can have its uses. You know, there are times when you want a strict line of command. You know, you don't want the fire department to pull up in front of your burning house and sit down and have a five-hour consensus meeting about <laughs> who's turn to use the hold the hose, right? Mm-hmm. You want them to know their roles, know what to do, and respond But you also don't want those roles to then give them inordinate resources or abilities to control other people in other areas or tell them what to do. Right now, we're seeing, I think, a huge wave of people wanting power over and wanting systems where if they're not in control, somebody's in control. Mm. and a real revival of the desire for authoritarianism. And I think part of that comes from people's lack of feeling a sense of empowerment. Yes. need to feel, again, one of our deep needs is to feel like we can make an impact on the world. And if people don't feel that in a positive way, they'll try to do it in a negative way. And we see that happen tragically over and over and over again. Someone who doesn't feel a sense of actual personal empowerment can pick up a gun and go shoot a bunch of people. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was struck by when I was rereading some of your work in preparation for this interview was like, you have lived through so many cycles and some amazing breakthroughs and evolutions, but also some really heartbreaking, I'll call it regression. And so in this moment right now, where we've got the issue of climate change, we have our democracy in peril. I mean, guns are a problem, certainly here in America. I wonder if in our final moments, you could speak to whether or not you still feel hopeful. I feel tremendously hopeful, and that's partly because, as I mentioned earlier, I am very involved in permaculture, in just actual hands-on ways of healing the earth, and teaching and training and giving people the tools to develop systems in their own lives that can meet their needs and actually regenerate the environment around us. So I know at very intimate levels, our capacity for regeneration is enormous. It's huge. And I feel like young people especially are a generation coming up that deeply, deeply desire that and are less bound by some of the prejudices of their elders and are much more aware that they're going to have to live in the world. So that is what gives me hope. And it is a very dangerous time at the point of so many different massive social transformations around things like gender, around things like 
the constructs we've had of people of other cultures and other races, of reviewing our own history, of shifting the whole energy and economic basis of our society. It's scary to a lot of people, but it's also tremendously exciting that we can create a world that is healing, regenerating, that is going to be a more healthful and a more nourishing place to live in. And we can do it on a basis of more equity and more justice. We have to, otherwise it's not going to happen. To me, that's something that can give us all a great sense of purpose in life. But to get there, I think it's really important right now that we understand the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. (laughs) Being a purist on any level, being a dogmatist, whether it's on the left or the right, that going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories of any sort, I've really come to the conclusion that even if the conspiracy theory might by some means actually be true, it's not empowering to believe it, and it's not a way of making change. We need to do the things, you know, we need to say, where is the crisis happening? The last few years, it's happening in electoral politics. Mm-hmm. There's always a direct action gal. <laughs> yeah. But right now, it's kind of like, hmm, I never wanted to take power. I always wanted to transform power. But now I'm realizing, well, you can't transform power unless you have some power to do that with. And right now, that means getting out the vote and making sure we stop these Christian nationalists and these alt-right folks from taking away the power that people already have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Starhawk, I want to highlight for people that your permaculture course, which you call Earth Activist Training, is about to be offered again at the beginning of 2023. It starts on January 7th. And I know that's just one in a whole host of magical and earth-based and political offerings that you are giving people access to. Is there anything else you want to make sure that people know? Yeah, people can go to my website, which is starhawk.org. And I have a winter solstice ritual I'll be doing online on December 16th. I also will be doing another series on ritual skills online next year sometime and magical activism. And Earth Activist Training, which is our organization, has a lot of courses. So, yes, we have a permaculture design course coming up in January. We have a hands-on course coming up in February. That's around deepening our nature awareness. Also, learning really practical skills and tools around fire and fire ecology and animal systems. And we have a lot of wonderful online courses coming up over the next year in both beginning and advanced levels. So come check it out. And I love having (laughs) witches with the tools of earth healing and earth healers with the witchy tools of connecting to the land. Hell yes. Starhawk, it's difficult to even know how to thank you. I just have so much gratitude for you and so much love for you. So I'm just going to leave this with a big, big, big thank you for your magic and your 
sharing of power and gift. And thank you for being such an inspiration to me and to many, many, many people around the world. You are just it. You are it, Starhawk. Good luck with your podcast. And thank you for inviting me to be on. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Starhawk for blazing the spiral trail for all of us. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witchwave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witchwave.